Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will anyone rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how are we robbing you? In your tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and thus put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. I will rebuke the locust for you, so that it will not destroy the produce of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not be barren, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will count you happy, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us go to God in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for these words of wisdom from Malachi. We pray, Lord, that we might, in these few moments together, hear what you have to say about them, what, what you have to say about our own living. So don't let the preacher's words get in the way, but speak to us in such a way that we can understand what you're saying to us as, as your people. Speak, your servants are listening. Amen. I may have told you this uh, uh, probably more than once, but uh, years ago when, when my three boys uh, were growing up, when they were very young, at that time I was working in our conference headquarters in communications, uh, and I was editor of The Advocate, and so I did a lot of traveling around the country with uh, meeting with other United Methodist communicators, and uh, we were living in Richmond then, and, and uh, I would often fly to my various destinations uh, out of the Richmond airport. And back in those days, in fact, we just went by there not too long ago and realized, wow, look how it's changed over the years. It have these two huge parking decks. It's, uh, it's probably two or three times the size it used to be. But back in those days, uh, you could actually, you could take your whole family right up to the gate. And um, in fact, the way you boarded the, tra the train, the plane, you would, uh, you would actually walk across the tarmac and then walk up the stairs to get, get into the plane. And uh, so often my, my wife and our three boys would come take me to the airport, and so they would go to the gate with me, and, and then uh, I would go out uh, to board the plane. And just before I'd go uh, step up the stairs to the plane, I would look back toward, toward the terminal, and there would be all three boys, you know, just kind of with their noses to the glass looking out, and they could see me, and I could see them. And so we had this little ritual, and just before I'd go up the stairs, I would go, okay, I love you this much. Obviously, they couldn't hear me. I couldn't shout it across the tarmac, but I could go through those motions, and they would do the same thing. My oldest son now uh, is... I can't believe it, 30 years old, and we're going to be baptizing our first grandchild at, at 11 o'clock. Um, but um, to this day, when he leaves our home or when I, uh, you know, when we leave their home up in Northern Virginia, we go through the motion. So it's kind of stuck with us over, over those years. Maybe it was because of that. I'm not sure. But 
when, when I have uh, chapel with our preschool children every Monday morning, uh, one of the things, one of the little rituals that we do at the very end of the service um, is that, and, and they kind of join in, and I'll point to heaven, God loves me this much. And of course, when we get around to Easter and when we're talking about Jesus dying on the cross, I mean, the, the spread arms obviously has that, that double meaning God loves us that much, willing to die for us. Now, that, you know, open arms can, can represent the love that we share, but it also can represent us being open to receiving that love. So, so it's, it's a sign of love that flows out and love that flows in. Um, I'm not sure, you know, what the... Um, what the the beginning, you know, what the the root of that that sort of body language would be. I don't know where it actually began. I don't, you know, but I think it's probably universally accepted today. If you open your arms, there's a kind of an openness to to people, um, and um, may, maybe it goes back to the time when you know. Everybody, you know, there was warfare, and so soldiers would come up, and so it would be a way of saying, see, I, I don't have any weapons. I, I have no shield. I have no sword. It, it's sort of making yourself vulnerable. Um, you're, you're wide open for whatever might come your way. So it can be a sign of vulnerability, if you will, a, a sign of uh, receptiveness, maybe. Like, I, I'm, I'm open to becoming your friend, that I don't have to be your adversary. And maybe that's why uplifted arms have come to represent a sign of praise. You know, our way of saying that we are open to God, we surrender ourselves to God. Well, I think Malachi was trying to get his Jewish readers of his prophecy or those who may have heard the prophecy spoken, although, you know, some scholars believe that Malachi really wasn't a person because the name Malachi actually means um, my messenger or God's messenger. And, and Malachi, the name Malachi doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to talk as, as if Malachi is a real person, and it really doesn't matter. What really matters is what the message of the, this school of thought is, what God is trying to say to us through the prophet Malachi. And, and I think what Malachi was trying to get his Jewish listeners and readers to, to understand is that God wants them to surrender themselves to God. You know, to be open to God, to receive what God has to offer to them, to open their arms to God. Now, I'd like I'd like to take a little stroll down uh, down history lane. I want you to recall Phil's sermon last week when he was talking about Abram having this vision, this dream of God coming to him and offering him a relationship, a covenant, if you will. And if you recall, there was this dreadful dream of, of animal parts being split in two. And, and the idea was that 
that God was cutting a covenant with, with Abram. And whoever would pass between these, these uh, torn apart parts of animals would be entering into this agreement that if, if either party broke this agreement, they, they would have happened to them what happened to these, to these animals. So that's why it was such a dreadful, uh, terrifying dream for Abram. And in the dream, God is represented by a, a fiery pot, uh, like a torch that goes down between these, uh, these animal parts to show that God was participating in this, uh, in this covenant. If you recall, part of what God said to Abram when this agreement was made is that I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. However, there's going to come some really tough times ahead. For instance, you're going to, you're going to be slaves for 400 years. That's a pretty, pretty terrifying. That's part of the, what made the dream so terrifying. Now, probably what was being referred to there was the eventual bondage of the, of the Hebrews in Egypt. And they would be in Egypt for a long time before Moses would arrive and, and free the people from, from slavery. But that was not the last time that the Hebrews would be in bondage. In 587 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, he invaded uh, Israel and burned the temple, destroyed the temple, and then carried many, many of the Hebrew people back into Babylon. Babylon today uh, is sort of comparable to Iraq. So you can see even that many, what, 2,600 years ago, there was still turmoil in the region. And um, so Nebuchadnezzar saw that the people of Judah uh, were taken out, taken out of Jerusalem, taken out of uh, Israel, all the lands of what we call the Holy Land, and many of them were taken back to Babylon where they became slaves and where they, they really were in bondage. And this was known as the Babylonian exile, lasted for 50 years until, until 539 B.C. when Cyrus of Persia, the king of Persia, he defeated the Babylonian Empire. So Persia now became uh, the empire. It was known as the Persian uh, uh, period. Uh, and many of the Jewish writers later write about this Persian king. Persia, by the way, is, uh, would be comparable to Iran today. Um, so you can see way back then uh, there was still conflicts between Iraq and Iran. And so uh, many writers, Jewish writers, really had a lot of wonderful things to say about Cyrus because this is what Cyrus did. When Cyrus defeated Babylon, Cyrus allowed the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. And not only that, Cyrus helped pay to rebuild the temple. It was as if Cyrus was trying to be kind to these people so that he could rule the people. So you would think this would be a glorious time. That, wow, Israel was back, back in, the, in the driver's seat. Well, maybe, but. For many of the people who had been in exile all those 50 years, they had an expectation of what they would find when they came back to their homeland. But when they came back to their homeland, it wasn't what, it, what they thought it would be. It wasn't, it wasn't as perfect. It, wasn't, it, it was as if it were a dried up old tree. It was like it wasn't, 
you know, the temple had been destroyed and it was going to take, a to take some time before it got rebuilt. And so during all that period of time, they weren't even certain if that was going to really be completed. But most importantly, they found that the land was inhabited by people that they weren't expecting. Some of their own people, Jewish people, in their mind had given up hope. And so they had intermarried with foreigners, the foreigners that the Babylonians had brought in during, during the exile. And they, they didn't have a temple to worship. And so as far as the Jews were concerned, they, did a, they created a kind of a hybrid religion. And they, they created another place of worship out on Mount Gerizim. And these people became known as the Samaritans. And if you remember in the time of Jesus, the Samaritans were hated by the Jews and they were hated by them because they had, they had intermarried and they had, they, had, they had become a different people. They were racially different. They, they practiced a religion that was similar yet, yet somehow different. And, and, and these, these former exiles who had returned now, they also found other people worshiping other gods, strange gods, idols. They just, it wasn't the place that they had heard their forefathers tell them about. Now, there was no king. Cyrus was not about to allow them to have a king, but he did allow them to have religious leaders who, in essence, became their leaders. They became the priests in the temple. And the high priest was the, the highest ranking of the priests. And what the people saw is that these priests were not as honorable as perhaps they should have been. And so the people began to turn away from God because they thought God had turned away from them. As I said, it was as though their land had dried up. There were a tree that was withering right in front of their eyes. And that's why Malachi writes, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say... How have you loved us? You see, Malachi is capturing that depression, that, that sense of hopelessness of the people. How do you say you love us? Look around. Do you ever feel that way? Look around, God. What do you mean you love us? How can you allow these things to happen all around us? That's what the people were saying to God. In so many words, the people, they closed their arms to God. They just put their arms together and said, we, we don't believe you love us and we don't, we're not going to surrender ourselves to you. And that's why Malachi writes, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. Put me to the test. Just have a little faith. Believe that that." that I will give you the blessings that I promised to, your, to Abraham and to all those who have come since. In other words, open your arms, Malachi is writing. Open your arms and see if God will open God's arms to you. You know, when Joseph um, learned that he, his fiancée, his bride-to-be, Mary was pregnant and he was not the father. He made a decision that he was going to just quietly divorce her. You know, they weren't even married yet, but he was going to he was going to quietly dismiss her. So that she wouldn't get into trouble, he wouldn't as well. 
though it'd be kind of hard to protect her from what would come her way. Until he, he had this dream, and Gabriel comes to him and says, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In other words, what, what Gabriel was uh, telling Joseph was, um, just open your arms. Have a little faith. Trust me. You know, I, I'm going to pour out for you an overflowing blessing, so just open your arms. Don't, don't too quickly give up hope. Joseph was having to learn to be vulnerable, you see, to surrender himself to God, to let go of control. God was opening God's arms to him and to the world. And Jesus was the gift. Jesus was the blessing. And as Jesus would eventually stretch his arms out across the beams of that cross, God would show the world how much God loves all of us. Joseph and Mary and you and me, we, we all are going to have to open our arms to receive that love. It's as simple as that. We, it, it's, it's, it's a gift, but we have to be open to receiving it. I think that's exactly why Jesus told Nicodemus that you must be born again if you want to see the kingdom of God. In other words, you must become a child again. You must become someone who's not in control. He was a Pharisee. He sat on the Sanhedrin, the highest uh, court of the Jewish landscape. He had every reason to have his life in control. And what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus is that you've got to let go and open your arms, surrender yourself to God. And that was probably the hardest thing that Jesus could have asked Nicodemus to do. Well, God is calling us to open our arms as well. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. It's that simple. But it's not easy. Like the Hebrews returning from Persia and Babylon. The world is not perfect. The world is not what maybe as a child we had hoped it would be. The older you get, the more you realize that the dreams you had as a child, well, they just didn't necessarily pan out the way that you wanted them to. There's pain all around us. There's illness and death and war and political strife. Problems at work and home. Every one of us could make a list. And I dare say most of us came here this morning with at least one item on that list running around in our mind. But God says, put me to the test and see if I will not open the windows of heaven to, for you and pour out for you an overflowing blessing. Have a little faith. Malachi is saying to us, God is saying that. There are more blessings out there than you and I realize. So open your arms and receive them. You know, um, as I was kind of finishing up my work on my sermon, I received uh, an email from from somebody in the church that shared a, 
a masterful work by that famous author, Anonymous. And it just seems so appropriate. I wanted to share this with you. It's called What Happens in Heaven When We Pray. I'll read that. I dreamed that I went to heaven and an angel was showing me around. We walked side by side inside a large workroom filled with angels. My angel guide stopped in front of the first section and said, This is the receiving section. Here all petitions to God said in prayer are received. I looked around in this area and it was terribly busy with so many angels sorting out petitions written on voluminous paper sheets and scraps from people all over the world. Then we moved on down a long corridor until we reached the second section. The angel then said to me, this is the packaging and delivery section. Here the graces and blessings the people asked for are processed and delivered to the living persons who asked for them. I noticed again how busy it was there. There were many angels working hard at that station since so many blessings had been requested and were being packaged for delivery to earth. Finally, at the farthest end of the long corridor, we stopped at the door of a very small station. To my great surprise, only one angel was seated there, idly doing nothing. This is, uh, this is a, you know, acknowledgement section. My angel friend quietly admitted to me. He seemed embarrassed. How is it there is no work going on here, I asked. So sad, the angel sighed. After people receive the blessings that they asked for, very few send back acknowledgments. How does one acknowledge God's blessings, I asked. Simple, the angel answered. Just say, thank you, Lord. What blessings should they acknowledge, I asked. Well, if you have food in the refrigerator, clothes on your back, a roof overhead, and a place to sleep, you are richer than 75% of the world. If you have money in the bank, in your wallet, and spare change in a dish, you are among the top 8% of the world's wealthy. And if you get this on your computer, meaning this story, you're part of the 1% in the world who has that opportunity. If you woke up this morning and with more health and illness, you are more blessed than the many who will not even survive this day. If you've never experienced the fear in battle, the loneliness of imprisonment, the agony of torture, or the pangs of starvation, you are ahead of 700 million people in the world. If you can attend church without the fear of harassment, arrest, torture, or death, you are envied by and more blessed than 3 billion people in the world. If your parents are still alive and still married, you're very rare. <laughs> if you can hold your head up and smile, you are not the norm. You're unique in all those in doubt and despair. Okay, I said, what now? How can I start? The angel said, if you can read this message, you just received a double blessing in that someone was thinking of you as very special. And you are more blessed than over two billion people in the world who cannot read at all. You know, 
God is simply saying to all of us, I love you this much. That's what God is saying to us. By all the blessings that, that I've just outlined that we've all received. And all we have to do is open our arms and say, thank you, Lord. And then go about living our lives as though we really mean it. Let us pray. Lord, forgive us. We're just human, and so it's natural for us to complain. There's always something that doesn't go quite right. Things at work, things at home. They're, they're, we can make a list, Lord, of things that well, we're just not happy about. And the more time we spend doing that, the less time we spend on simply recognizing the blessings you've given us. So forgive us, Lord. And then help us. Help us to say thank you by the way we live. Amen.